Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, Pete Waltz. Well, everybody, we're back again for episode 10. Welcome back to our DC Insiders. This week, Nita Beecher is on vacation, so we have the tag team of David Fortney. David, how are you? I'm wonderful, Peter. How are you today? I'm doing really well. And the one and only Bert Fishman filling in the second slot in today's program. Bert, glad to have you back. Hi, Pete. Glad to be here. So, gentlemen, this is the last of our series covering the first 100 days of the Biden administration. And man, has it been a wild ride. Lots going on. David, what did you think of it? Well, I agree with you. It's been a wild ride. There's been some areas where I thought the administration, frankly, surprised us and overperformed. And there's some areas where they've underperformed, too. But it's been tough to keep up with all the things, but it's been a lot of fun. Bert, I know you've got some thoughts on this. What do you think? Well, I've always been... Uh... Uh, surprised by the interest in the first 100 days. It's such an artificial measure. But in this instance, especially with the uh, pandemic going, the response to the pandemic and the, uh, the rate at which vaccinations have gotten into people's arms has been both surprising and wonderful. So let's start with the headlines and rundown from last week. Bert, go ahead. You know, thank you, Pete. I'm glad to do so. COVID is still the lead story in the country, of course. And it's one of those success but situations. Vaccination rate is high, but it is slowing. And hesitancy and uh, resistance are are still present. Uh, CDC just announced that uh, so-called herd immunity is not likely in the foreseeable future. So in light of that, the president has announced a new goal, and it's uh, 70% of the available population will have one shot by the 4th of July. And we all hope that that can happen. And just this morning, something that may help that, Pfizer formally sought full FDA approval for its vaccine, which means it would no longer be EUA, an emergency usage, and might be used for general use, which raises issues of mandatory vaccines and things of that ilk. So here we are back in that same uh, good news, bad news situation on COVID. Other issues that I see uh, and been really focusing on are the nominees. Bert, you'd like to tell us personnel is policy. And with that, some of the key personnel are starting to grind their way through. Uh, We've got a vote coming up the week, uh, I think on May 12 is is the date scheduled for the vote on both the solicitor of labor. That's the general counsel, if you will, for the Department of Labor. Very important person for Marty Walsh, number three in the department, and also for the new National Labor Relations Board General Counsel. Both of them had fairly bruising hearings, but both are expected to be confirmed, albeit by pretty narrow margins. One of the key nominee that really hasn't yet had his hearing and gotten full traction is Ferocia. Uh, That is the former Cal OSHA uh, head, and he's expected, obviously, COVID will be one of the lead issues that he's going to be queried on, too. The absence of a appointee is now the lead story this week because it is rumored that the empty wage and hour administrator's post will be uh, filled by the former uh, wage and hour administrator, the very controversial David Weil. 
And we'll talk about him and the implications of that later, but that is a very important upcoming nomination. Boy, talk about a red flag. That nomination's a red flag. But interestingly, whereas under President Trump, mine safety was right out of the box, a real focus point, uh, remains still vacant. I mean, the fossil fuel industry just doesn't have the same traction with this administration as the last one. So, fellas, lots of open loops there for sure that hopefully will close soon. Let's turn the focus on what employers need to know about Biden's regulatory agenda and how that's going to impact them going forward. Bert, kick us off with that, if you would. You know, I think the overarching story is uh, right after the original burst of energy, those those freezing of regulations and the 40 executive orders, things have slowed down remarkably. And that may be because the nominations process is as slow as it always has been. I know uh, in OSHA, we finally have a nominee, the first since 2017. That's just the beginning of the OSHA regulatory agenda that David knows more about. Yeah. Well, you know, nominating people and getting those through is relatively the easy work. The hard work, as is demonstrated by how long it's taking to get this emergency temporary standard issued, uh, it, it takes a lot of time and effort. So let's remind ourselves. President Biden on day one said, we're going to get an emergency temporary standard, that's a regulation without notice and comment, to address COVID. And OSHA is going to issue that by March 15th or give us a reason why. They missed that. They're now two months behind on the deadline given by the president. The regulation is pending over at the White House for review. There have been up to two dozen meetings with key stakeholders, including from business, from the AFL-CIO, from all sorts of groups, some saying issue it right away, others saying make sure it's very dialed in and specific. But in the meantime, one of the challenge of fashioning an OSHA regulation is it has to meet the standard of is there a imminent grave danger? And as Bert has explained, every day as vaccinations continue to increase and we get greater levels of immunity because of that, the danger becomes less and less. It's kind of a slippery slope that they're up to uh, in terms of responding. I think uh, people have been a little distracted by the ETS because OSHA has announced that it's going to start moving ETS or not. Employers should expect more inspections. There'll be a continued focus on high-risk industries like meatpacking, healthcare, uh, food processing, warehousing. And there is a lot of money that's been poured into the Department of Labor for enforcement purposes. And OSHA is a key player in the whole COVID green economy stuff that the president keeps talking about. So we've covered the OSHA agency. Let's jump over to wage an hour, Bert. What do we have there? Still the biggest story in the regulatory world. Uh, just this week, the administration finally got around to formally withdrawing its independent contractor regulation. That's, uh, we'll connect that later when we talk about Mr. Weil, but that opens the whole floor to a new regulation that'll be much more pro-worker. It'll be harder to be an independent contractor. Today, May 7, the administration has to file something in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on the Joint Employer Regulation. You may recall that regulation was issued by the Trump administration in its last days. It was blocked by the court and immediately appealed by the Trump administration. And now the Biden administration has sought to delay that hearing so it could get its ducks in a row. The court said, nothing doing, we wanna hear from you. So we think today the Biden administration will say, we agree with the judge, 
this regulation should be blocked. And by the way, we've already taken steps to create a new one. So on the two key issues for employers on independent contractor and joint employer, this week has been the beginning of the end or the beginning of a new beginning. Well, the interesting thing is the certainty that was in place for the business community with the former, what is now to be the former independent contractor rule was extremely valuable, particularly as the economy is starting to reopen. So one of the unintended consequences is going to be we're going to enter into a period of uncertainty as to what the standards are that, that are going to govern who is an independent contractor, how to classify that worker, contractor, versus employee. Now we know where David Wiles coming from, the author of the Fishered Workplaces. He managed to unify the employer community uh, and with great concern and opposition, and he promises to do the same. So he's an interesting point that they have selected Wild to lead the, the wage hour division. But he is unabashed. He, the, as he has said, basically workers need to be employees so that they have the protections of the Fair Labor Standards Act and the other labor and workplace laws. This is quite at odds with how many workers themselves want to be classified. But nonetheless, this is where, if you will, the government's going to dictate how it's going to be done. And there are two avenues that this can follow. The Labor Department can slog it out with a new regulation that takes one to two years and be put in place with litigation to follow. Or they can try for a judicial interpretation, try taking on the big ones like the ride delivery, the service platforms, which, by the way, the Obama administration did not do that. They did it just with guidance and left it at that. So how the Walsh Labor Department approaches this remains to be seen. But we're pretty clear on the direction. It's going to look like the California ABC test at the end of the day. And, you know, the mentioning California is kind of critical because they're the ones that led the way with the so-called AB5, uh, making it almost impossible to be an independent contractor. And they are still dealing with the mess they've made, not realizing we're not talking about Uber drivers, but tens of thousands of people who are in fact independent, want to be independent, want the flexibility, but also are seeking the protections that employees have in a normal situation. So keep your eye on both of these two. They continue to be the hottest issues in employment law. One other thing that Wage Hour, because we're still waiting for a while to even be formally nominated, True. but one final thing that has happened in the interim is that with respect to settlements, one of the uh, challenges that we had during the Obama administration has already been reintroduced. And that is, if you go to settle with the Labor Department today uh, on a Fair Labor Standards Act claim, they will claim not only that you have to pay the alleged back wages that are due, but you have to pay double that amount. You have to pay liquidated damages on top of it. And the offer will be, you either pay liquidated damages, so if you owe $100, you have to pay $200, or we will take you to court. Now, this will have a chilling effect on settlements. It's likely to increase litigation, but that is the Labor Department's current position, and they're going forward from there. Man, lots of landmines in wage an hour for sure. David, keep that dialogue going if you can, but shift gears, if you would, to OFCCP and tell us what's up there. So we have, it's interesting because OFCCP, in contrast to some of these other agencies, the head of OFCCP does not even have to be confirmed by the uh, U.S. Senate. So Jenny Yang, the former chair of the EEOC, she started on the job literally 
within the hour after President Biden was confirmed, she was in her office at the Francis Perkins building working away on OFCCP. And there's been a number of things that we've seen, but we actually feel, I think that story is more still a little bit on the come. But what we do know is there's going to be this new verification requirement. They've loaded the portal. And what it means is that all federal contractors subject to penalties of perjury are going to have to file a written verification with the federal government saying, I verify I'm in compliance or I'm not in compliance. That's going to be a big deal. They're going to do it for every single establishment or location that they have. One of the other big issues pending at the OFCCP is what to do with the so-called religious uh, freedom uh, rule. Uh, It was published during the uh, Trump administration, and it's trying to deal with the Supreme Court's uh, favorable view of religious rights versus everybody else's rights. And the OFCCP, it appears to be at the point of rescinding the Trump rule and returning to its prior rule, making normal civil rights on an equal footing to be balanced with the rights of the religious claims. Speaking of rescission, OFCCP now has rescinded uh, these what were called focused reviews. These were little targeted reviews on, do you comply with the disability laws? Do you comply with the veterans laws? They were focused reviews that federal contractors had, kind of like a mini, that's M-I-N-I, small little review. Director Yang has said, forget that. We're not doing that. We're doing one kind of review. It's going to be all on. We're going to come on site. We're going to review things. And that's clearly the direction that they're looking at. So those little focused reviews, they're out. That enables them to deploy resources on bigger, much more invasive reviews. Those are coming. Yeah, and those are coming in the areas of compensation. Dave and I have talked about this in the past. Pay equity, compensation, data collection of All of those are going to be the key effort of the OFCCP. They need no additional legislation. They need no additional regulation. So if you're a federal contractor, get ready. Get ready is right. And the final thing that Director Yang really brings that's unique that she has spent a lot of time before coming to OFCCP focused on is the use of artificial intelligence. The use of AI in a host of workplace decisions, particularly in the hiring and promotion area, uh, and whether those have unlawful resulting disparate impact are areas that all indications are OFCCP is going to start bearing down on. And I'll tell you, we have a number of clients that are federal contractors. We're looking at that very, very closely for them. So OFCCP seemed to have a head start on on a number of the other agencies, especially since that director had been posted up literally as soon as the president took office. Let's go over to EEOC, Bert, and tell us what's going on there and what we can expect. We have a Republican majority with a Democratic chair, and they are kind of chomping at the bit and fighting with each other. The employer community, and I mean literally everybody in the country, has been waiting for guidance from the EEOC on what to do with COVID, how you deal with COVID and the law. The EEOC finally, just last week, held its first hearing on the issue of COVID compliance, and they had 12 representatives giving various views. The record is still open. All of that means to us who've been through this is that it's going to be another month or two before the EEOC gets its act together to issue a guidance that to assist the return to work so that employers know how they can deal with the vaccinations, whether they can mandate vaccinations and all of those issues. Hey, Bert, I just want to put a footnote on. You say 12 witnesses. That's correct. Only two 
were representing employers' concerns. So it was a bit of a stacked deck. Yes, they had they they listened to employer concerns, but two out of twelve. Give me a break, okay? Come on. But well, yeah, go ahead. But there are some things that are moving. Um, the chair, Chair Burroughs, the new Democratic chair, has said that she is intent on rebuilding her agency. She wants to hire four hundred and fifty new people in Washington, and she has the dough to do it. And she has a new general counsel, uh, although uh, controversial because the old one was fired during her term. But the new general counsel is going to challenge the RIFRA, the thing we just spoke of, the religious exemption. So there's lots of stuff that's in process. It's just nothing that's done. You know, one of the things that was done at the tail end of the Trump administration was this new regulation. And EEOC doesn't issue many of those on conciliation. And it has things that have proven to be controversial now, like if EEOC makes a demand, they have to actually show what it's based on. They have to identify who the members are in the class. They have to justify what the monetary demand is when they try to conciliate or settle a case. Those regulations, which got out the door so they were not subject to the Biden regulatory freeze, now the question is, are they going to be eliminated by Congress? We've talked before about Congressional Review Act. Well, this is one that's sitting on the bubble. It's kind of a two-edged sword, though, for the Democrats in Congress. If they eliminate this regulation, it means that the agency in the future cannot implement another regulation that is substantially similar. So it would preclude EEOC from regulating uh, on conciliation. Seems to me that they might want to wait I mean, you know, by 2022, what is it, summer, Bert, when yeah, Chair Dillon's July. term expires, right. When Chair Dillon, term, uh, uh, former chair, I should say, but Janet Dillon, who's currently a Republican member of the commission, her term's going to expire. That means that the president will put a Democrat in and the commission then will have three Democrats, two Republicans, and they'll be able to change the regulations easily if they want at that time. Remains to be seen whether that conciliation rule gets uh, rescinded. I hope not, because that's a really positive rule and is somewhat parallel to what OFCCP does when they settle. And do we think that Vice Chair Samuels is going to be renominated? Yes, I believe she will be renominated, and I think she's also going to be uh, confirmed. Uh, that's just kind of uh, part of it may be part of a package. They always do that. But I don't think that's going to be as controversial as the stuff going on at the NLRB. Well, speaking of the NLRB, uh, Bert, let's kick that off because it sounds like there's messes in every corner here, but let's talk about what's going on at NLRB. I know there's litigation holding up and a number of other things. Open it up for us. Yeah, it all goes back to the termination of the general counsel, Peter Robb, early in the Biden administration. It is still rattling through the agency. It's been challenged in court. One of the other residual difficulties is that the acting general counsel Anything he does is now immediately being challenged as illicit, as unauthorized, as improper, because he hasn't been formally put in that uh, position. And that is just rocketing through the agency. It's just nothing but turmoil. David mentioned the bruising uh, nomination hearing of the nominee for the general counsel's position. Whether she gets approved is frankly quite close, and she's going to be challenged that nomination, if it's confirmed, will also be challenged as illicit. But all of this seems to be having something of a moderating impact on the NLRB itself. They've issued a couple of decisions that frankly surprised everyone because they were not the hard line NLRB that we saw just a month ago. So maybe elections have consequences uh, 
in that reflected way. I still find it strange that there's an empty seat on the uh, NLRB. There's a board member vacancy, and the president hasn't yet put a nominee forward. I mean, you know, he was so focused on this agency that on day one, he fired the Republican general counsel. Why doesn't he have a nominee in there? I, I don't understand that. But nonetheless, it is moving forward as it is. You know, one final point that the uh, the turmoil at the NLRB and the Rob uh, firing, his term ends in mid-November had he been in place. And I think that the NLRB, the new general counsel, is waiting until she is unchallengeably in place. And then we're going to start seeing action. And most particularly, see, I think we're going to get the withdrawal of the famous uh, Uber memo, which said that gig employees are not eligible for union membership. So tons of stuff on the horizon, lots of open loops, lots of unanswered questions. And again, the last hundred days have been phenomenal, but let's move forward from here. I mean, what other initiatives, guys, can we expect employers to look at in the next hundred days? And then let's go beyond that. David, kick us off if you can. I think that one of the key things that we're going to see, Peter, is that federal contractors are going to be taking much greater burdens. They're going to take some hits beyond what we have seen so far. We've already talked about OFCCP is amping up and going to step up its enforcement. But the other thing that's going to happen is new obligations being laid on. That's going to be accomplished not by legislation, but through executive orders. And what's going to happen, and we've already seen this through the $15 minimum wage when it was not enacted by Congress, what did the president do? By the stroke of a pen, he signed the pen and entered it as a uh, obligation on federal contractors. We envision much the same is going to happen with certain provisions, key provisions of the pending bills we've discussed. The PRO Act. Is there going to be neutrality in organizing and drives for federal contractors? Yes. All the infrastructure projects that the president's talking about, rebuilding, how that's going to happen, all prevailing wage all with project labor agreements, and those in the union movement know what that entails. The pay data collection, much bigger obligations there. You know, I also think it's going to go on in a much broader the, uh, elements of a lot of the bills that are pending that we believe are not going to succeed. Paycheck Fairness, PRO Act are going to be visited on federal contractors. There are going to be limits on pre-dispute arbitration agreements. There's going to be some form of an adoption, I think, for federal contractors of this independent contractor stuff that we've been talking about. There's going to be a balance between the Department of Labor and the executive order. But those are the kinds of things that uh, we're looking forward to. There's already talk about limiting federal contractors from spending on union campaigns. There's already talk about causing employers to uh, report how much money they spend on union campaigns, including their legal fees, the so-called persuader rule. I think all of these are coming as part of executive orders to be visited on the federal workforce and on federal contractors. Well, fellas, it's been a great wrap up. And, uh, you know, we've done this now 10 weeks in a row and we've unpacked this first hundred days. And it's interesting when I go back and listen to some of our previous episodes, some of the predictions that you made turned out exactly as we said, and some things turned out differently. So let me ask a final question. Which predictions from our earlier shows did we get right and which ones turned out differently? I'll jump in first. There's some that we were sort of partially right on and partially wrong on with that flurry of executive orders and putting so many people in place at the beginning. 
we anticipated and predicted that the agencies would move almost in hyperdrive in this first 100 days. And although there was a flurry of activity, everything the White House could do unilaterally, that happened quickly. But when it got down into the bowels of the building within the Labor Department and in the other agencies, it did sort of slow down a little bit. OSHA is the best example of not getting the emergency temporary standard out. But there's a lot of things that just haven't moved as quickly as we thought they would with all those key people in place. The one place where we did get it exactly right was the expansion of the burden on federal contractors. Those have just begun. We just mentioned the $15 wage on federal contractors. I think we're just beginning and they will explode in the future. This was an interesting series, gentlemen. And again, I think we did a great job of unpacking things as it happened. And uh, the DC Insider will move on from here. So for those that stayed with us for all 10 episodes, I'm sure you learned a lot. For those that didn't catch up on that, dial us back to episode one. You'll see what we were talking about back in that day. But David, let's talk about where the DC Insider is going to go from here. Uh, what are some of your thoughts? Well, we're really excited about the podcast. We're having a lot of fun, getting a lot of great feedback. And now that this initial burst of the 100 days is is over, uh, we're going to probably step back to a twice-a-month format. We're going to pick up, obviously, on breaking developments as they occur during that time. But we're going to continue to discuss and analyze the key developments in Washington involving the agencies and Congress that the employers need to know. And we're going to be discussing COVID challenges that employers are facing, too. In fact, the next podcast that we're going to do, and we're going to bring Nita back from vacation, uh, and we're going to uh, match her up with uh, uh, one of our uh, friends and colleagues uh, from outside Fort Nee Scott, Brittany Fisher. She's with the Providence Health System based in Washington. That's not Washington, D.C., that's Washington State, where they run a multi-state for tens of thousands of employees, hospitals, healthcare services, healthcare institutions, and we're going to discuss what it's like going back to work. What are the return to work challenges? Whether the federal agencies are moving forward or not, employers are moving forward, and as are the states. And when you deal with multi-state employers, particularly in a high-risk industry like healthcare, it really helps lay out what those COVID-related challenges are. When we get that one done, we're going to move right back into a wide range of topics and speakers. We're going to feature some guest speakers coming up. So we're really excited about staying on top of things and continuing these podcasts. That's great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to join the program and help pull things together. To our listening audience out there, you're going to get more from the DC Insiders. Bert Fishman, it's been a pleasure working with you, and I look forward to future broadcasts. Thank you, Pete. Same here. And David, the same to you. You did a great job leading things. And Nita, we're waving to you on vacation, so we'll look forward to catching up with you. David, thanks again. Thank you, my friend. Yes. And folks, if you'd like to download a copy of the DC Insider Report, this is a really important document. Go to podcast.fortneyscott.com. That's F-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-C-O-T-T.com, podcast.fortneyscott.com to get a copy of that. Also to sign up to the podcast and also to listen to past episodes. Stay tuned. Make sure you watch for that next episode coming up, and we'll look forward to catching up with you then. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.